Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. Today we'll be discussing the Mythmakers. We'll be sharing our thoughts on the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, and so to join into the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Episode 1, Temple of Secrets. On an open plain, two warriors named Hector and Achilles are locked in a duel to the death, as Achilles seeks to gain revenge for the death of his friend Patroclus at the hands of Hector. Unbeknownst to them, the TARDIS has landed nearby, and the crew observing the fight through the monitor. Vicky and Stephen wonder why the two men are fighting, and the doctor says he will go and talk to them. He waves off their protests and tells them to rest in the TARDIS until he returns. Outside, Hector is gaining the upper hand and mocks Achilles' claims that the gods will help the Greeks take the city of Troy. Hector challenges Zeus to descend from the heavens so that he may show Achilles just how powerful a warrior he is. As he does so, the Doctor emerges from the TARDIS and distracts Hector long enough for Achilles to kill him. The Doctor gives out to Achilles for doing so, but Achilles says that he did it for Zeus, who he assumes the Doctor to be. The Doctor finds this humorous until Achilles says that he is thankful Zeus appeared as an old beggar and not in his true form, which would have blinded him. The Doctor orders him to take Hector's body and prepare it for a funeral, but Achilles blocks his way back into the TARDIS. The Doctor threatens to strike him down with a thunderbolt for his impudence, but Achilles begs to be heard. He recounts the events of the Trojan War and requests that he accompany him to King Agamemnon's camp. As they talk, they are observed by Vicky and Stephen, who decide to change into more suitable clothes in case they need to follow. On the ridge near the TARDIS, Achilles shows the Doctor the city of Troy and rages over the fact that the Greek army have been besieging the city for ten years, but to no avail. As they are talking, Odysseus arrives and suggests that Achilles return to the camp with his prisoner, lest he get captured. Odysseus comes across as arrogant and brutish, and mocks Achilles over the claims that he killed Hector in combat, and that the Doctor is Zeus in human form. His attention is then drawn to the TARDIS, which the Doctor refers to as his temple, and again Odysseus mocks the pair. He agrees with Achilles that the Doctor should be brought into the camp, but is more insistent and makes it more of a threat than a request. He says that the Doctor can come willingly and entertain the Greek camp with tales of the gods cavorting, or he can come as a prisoner and can explain why he is lurking near the Greek camp. He summons his men to take the Doctor into custody, but he insists on going himself, and follows on after them. Odysseus also orders Hector's body to be taken back to the camp. Achilles decides to report directly to Agamemnon, and returns to the camp via a different direction. Inside the TARDIS, Vicky and Stephen observe the Doctor being led away, and Stephen decides to follow on after them. Vicky wants to go as well, but Stephen says her ankle, which she hurt escaping from the Draven, is still too injured for her to go on. He makes his way after the Greeks and Vicky watches him from the monitor, wishing him luck. When she uses the monitor to look around the surrounding area, she sees a group of Trojan soldiers nearby, observing the sight of the duel and staring at the TARDIS. One of them makes his way towards the TARDIS and carefully places a small plaque at the base of it. In the Greek camp, Agamemnon is scolding his brother Menelaus over his heavy drinking. Menelaus is tired of the war and doesn't care about recovering his wife, whose abduction was the start of the war. Agamemnon doesn't care if they recover her either, as the war suits his plan for conquest of Asia Minor. Achilles arrives and announces the news of Hector's death, which frustrates Agamemnon as he had planned to issue a challenge to him on Menelaus' behalf in order to settle the conflict once and for all. Achilles overcomes his annoyance at this lack of respect and informs the two kings of the arrival of Zeus. Agamemnon becomes furious when he hears that Odysseus is taken in prisoner, as Agamemnon is deeply superstitious and doesn't want to risk the fury of the gods. 
He summons both Odysseus and the Doctor, and once they arrive, the Doctor uses this opportunity to use the charade to his advantage. He infuriates Agamemnon when attempting to show his divine knowledge by informing him that his wife has been unfaithful to him back in Greece. Agamemnon says there is no way to prove this claim, but the Doctor tries to convince him that even if he is not a god, he is still just one man and is therefore powerless against the might of the Greek army. Odysseus urges for him to be killed, but Achilles and Agamemnon refuse to do so and he storms out. The Doctor informs the others that they are very close to victory in the war, but they still will not let him leave. Agamemnon says that he will be placed under reverent arrest. He will enjoy the hospitality of the camp and in return share his knowledge of their impending victory. Stephen is making his way towards the Greek camp, but has to avoid patrols in the area. He tries to make his way in secret, but his progress has been observed and reported by a one-eyed spy named Cyclops, who was loyal to Odysseus. As he approaches the king's tent, he is accosted by Odysseus, who demands to know if he knows the doctor. Stephen plays dumb, saying that he is merely a simple traveller, but Odysseus says that he will put his story to the test and throws him into the tent. Odysseus enters after him, mockingly introducing him as Apollo and a fellow god like the doctor. Both companions feign ignorance of each other and Odysseus suggests that Stephen be put to death. The doctor agrees but orders them not to stain the tent of the king with blood. Instead, he orders them back to his temple and says at dawn he would prove his divinity by striking Stephen down with a bolt of lightning. All seem to be in agreement to this course of action when the Cyclops is brought into the tent by a pair of sentries. He reports that the TARDIS has been removed from its spot in the plains. Episode 2. Small Prophet, Quick Return Odysseus says that unless the Doctor can perform the promised miracle and prove his divinity, he will be killed alongside Stephen. At the plains, the Greeks and their prisoners see tracks leading off in the direction of Troy, which Odysseus claims is proof of the Doctor's duplicity. Agamemnon offers the Doctor one last chance to prove that he is Zeus and kills Stephen, but left with no other choice, he admits the truth that he and Stephen are friends, but denies that they are Trojan spies. Agamemnon orders them to be killed and then makes his way back to the camp. Odysseus offers the travellers one final chance to speak truthfully about who they are and where they come from. The Doctor and Stephen finish telling Odysseus the truth about their arrival, but far from being sceptical about their story, he seems intrigued by their outlandish tale. He gives them the ultimatum that he will release them on the condition that they use their futuristic knowledge to come up with a way to defeat the Trojans within two days' time. In Troy, the patrol led by Prince Paris returns with the Taras, and they meet King Priam. Prime is less than pleased that Paris has returned with a wooden box instead of Achilles' body as retribution for Hector's death. Paris says that it is a Greek shrine and should be placed in their holy temple. However, Princess Cassandra arrives and refuses to let it be placed in the temple. Priam agrees and again berates Paris for bringing it. Paris tries to make him see that it is a very valuable spoil of war, but neither of them are convinced. Cassandra, who is the high priestess of the temple and blessed with the gift of prophecy, says that she received a vision that told her of a structure belonging to the Greeks that would be brought into the city and once inside, soldiers would exit from it and destroy the city. Paris brushes off this notion as he points out the size of the TARDIS, but Cassandra retorts that even one soldier would be enough to open the city gates and allow the rest of the Greek army in. Prime suggests that they look inside, but Paris reveals that he has not been able to enter it. Cassandra suggests that they burn it as an offering to the gods. Vicky overhears this and rushes to the TARDIS wardrobe room and frantically begins searching for the appropriate clothing. Priam and Paris oversee workers placing kindling around the TARDIS. Paris again tries to dissuade them from burning the ship and suggests they beseech the gods for a sign that they should not burn it. Cassandra reluctantly agrees and asks the gods for a sign, at which point Vicky emerges from the TARDIS wearing appropriate Grecian-style clothing. The assembled nobles question Vicky about who she is and what she is doing and she innocently replies that she is a traveller from the future. 
The Trojans take this to mean that she is a prophetess as well, which infuriates Cassandra, as Vicky again innocently states she hasn't taken any exams on the subject. Cassandra says that she must be an agent of Agamemnon, and Priam gently questions Vicky, who decides to rename her Cressida, as he thinks her name is too outlandish. He takes her inside to feed her and angrily stops Paris from following them, ordering him not to come back until he has killed Achilles. Cassandra still insists that she will bring doom to Troy and petitions the gods to help her eliminate Vicky. Meanwhile, all of these events have been observed by the Cyclops, who goes to report back to Odysseus. In the Greek camp, the Doctor and Stephen are brainstorming ideas on how to defeat the Trojans. Stephen suggests using the wooden horse, but the Doctor says that it's an impractical idea that was most likely invented by the poet Homer to make the story of Troy more interesting. As they debate the best way to fulfil their task, Odysseus arrives for a status update. The Doctor tells him that they are working on it, but adds a condition to their deal and requests that they be given help to locate and rescue Vicky once they get into Troy. Odysseus says that it would be impractical to try and stop the soldiers from looting and pillaging and suggests that they should forget about her. Before they can discuss the matter further, a messenger arrives and informs Odysseus that Agamemnon has ordered him to stand in Achilles' place for a duel with Paris. Odysseus rejects the order as he views Paris as a coward and not worth the effort. Stephen suggests that this could be an opportunity to rescue Vicky. He says if he dresses as a Greek soldier and allows himself to be captured, then he can try and locate Vicky within the city. Odysseus agrees and gives Stephen the weapons and armour of his fallen friend Diomedes. As Stephen goes to get ready, the doctor suggests using flying machines to gain access to Troy. On the plains, Paris timidly calls out Achilles' name, clearly reluctant to fight the famous warrior. As he is calling, Stephen approaches, introducing himself as Diomedes, and challenges Paris to a fight. Paris tries to get out of it, but Stephen refuses to let him go, and so they begin to fight. Realising that he has the beating of Paris, Stephen throws the fight and yields to him. Paris is taken aback by this behaviour. Stephen doubles down on the flattery in order to convince Paris that he was no match for a warrior as renowned as him. He tells Paris that Achilles is still in the plains looking for him, and Paris decides to hurry back to Troy with Stephen as his prisoner. As they go, they are observed by the Cyclops. In the royal palace, Vicky and Priam are discussing the war and the Trojans' fondness for horses. She accidentally lets slip about the legend of the wooden horse, thereby breaking the Doctor's rules about interfering in history, and changes the subject to the seemingly mutual attraction between her and Priam's youngest son, Troilus, who had been feasting with them. Priam steers the conversation back to the legend, but Paris interrupts before Vicky can say anything. Priam gives out to him for his intrusion, but Paris insists on showing off his prisoner. Stephen is brought in, and both he and Vicky greet each other by their real names. Cassandra, who had been watching from the shadows, enters the room and uses this as proof that Vicky is a spy due to Stephen wearing Greek armour. She orders the guards to kill them both. Episode 3. Death of a Spy Paris recants Cassandra's orders and the siblings begin to bicker over who holds the greater authority. Priam, impressed by Paris's newfound confidence, breaks up the fight but points out that taking a single prisoner isn't as heroic a task as Paris makes it out to be. Paris insists that Stephen, still being referred to as Diomedes, is no mere prisoner, and at his urging, Stephen recounts their fight to those in attendance. Cassandra is still adamant that Vicky and Stephen are in league with each other, and Prime decides to give Vicky a chance to prove her claims of being from the future. He gives her one full day to tell them how to defeat the Greeks, or she will be burnt as an offering to the gods. She and Stephen are then sent to the dungeons for safekeeping, but Prime assures Vicky that she will be kept comfortable. In the Greek camp, the doctor explains his plan on how to enter the city to Odysseus. He suggests that they create rudimentary hand gliders for a squad of soldiers and they can be launched into the air via a custom-made slingshot. Once airborne, the soldiers should be able to glide over the city walls to open the gates and admit the rest of the Greek army. Odysseus agrees to the plan but states that he will use the doctor as his first test subject. 
In the dungeons, Vicky and Stephen argue over the fact that they blew each other's cover. Stephen informs her that the Doctor has been tasked with helping the Greeks win the war, thereby placing him in competition with Vicky. He also points out that Cassandra would probably try to sabotage her efforts in order to reassert her dominant status. Vicky says that Paris or Troilus wouldn't allow any harm to come to her and changes the subject to what the Doctor was planning. Stephen tells her the Doctor's reaction to his wooden horse suggestion, but before he can go any further, he is distracted by a stone thrown into his cell from the outside. He sees that it was from Cyclops. Stephen gives him instructions to relay orders for them not to attack the city until the day after tomorrow. Before he can confirm if the Cyclops understands him, Troilus enters bearing food and asks what's going on. Vicky distracts Troilus by asking him to join her for food and despite being under strict orders not to talk to her, he does so. They converse and Troilus says that he has no real desire for war and instead he wants a life of adventure, something Vicky says she shares with him. In the Greek camp, the doctor is having second thoughts about his plan. Odysseus thinks he's trying to back out of his end of the deal and threatens to fire the doctor from the catapult, with or without the hang glider. The doctor, however, says that he has an even better plan and decides to use the wooden horse ploy, which Odysseus eagerly agrees to. He summons Agamemnon and Menelaus to his tent and shows them the plans for the horse. They seem depressed with it and Odysseus will go in the horse with his best troops and the doctor. The doctor tries to protest this, but Odysseus waves it off and says that once night falls, he and his men will exit the horse and opens the gate for the rest of the army. In the dungeons, Troilus says that he must leave and Vicky asks that he take some food to Stephen. He refuses, stating that he is a Greek and begins to show jealousy when Vicky says that Stephen is a very good friend of hers. Vicky notices this and puts him at ease by saying that he and the others need not worry about that. Stephen, who has been eavesdropping, teases Vicky over her encounter with Troilus, but she says that she was trying to get them out of the dungeons. She gives him some food that she stashed away and says that she thinks she could be happy in this past time. Stephen reminds her of the deadline over their heads and when Vicky mentions his discussion with Cyclops, he tells her that he didn't get a chance to finish giving instructions, but he hopes it was enough. When a guard comes with scraps to give to Stephen, he tries to make a break for it but is immediately apprehended by more guards and returned to his cell. Vicky says that the only thing they can do now is wait. Outside the city, Cyclops encounters a Trojan patrol led by Paris. Due to his muteness, he is unable to answer and one of the guards kills him, much to Paris' annoyance. The Greeks have completed the wooden horse and despite his protestations, the doctor is forced into it along with Odysseus and his troops. The horse is left out on the plains outside the city and its occupants are forced to wait until someone comes to collect it. The doctor tries to voice his second thoughts about the success of the scheme, but Odysseus silences him and informs him that he can see Trojans approaching with ropes from a spy hole in the side of the horse. He whispers for silence that the horse is being brought towards the city. In the dungeons, an excited Troilus comes to collect Vicky and tells her that all the Greeks have left. He tells her that Prime is convinced that she had some part in it and wants her to come up and join in the celebrations. Vicky asks about Stephen, but Troilus mocks her that he is now alone. He then takes Vicky back upstairs and Prime greets her with open arms. Cassandra enters and again tries to warn her father, but he brushes her off and turns to address the newly arrived Paris. He confirms that the Greeks have gone and, and informs them about the wooden horse. He takes them to the balcony and they shows the horse being brought into the city. Vicky whispers that the legend is coming true and Cassandra says that Vicky knows its true sinister purpose but Paris and Troilus come to the defence of the horse and Vicky respectively. Knowing that she will not be listened to, Cassandra announces that the horse will be the doom of Troy and their family. Episode 4, Horse of Destruction Priam and Paris denounce Cassandra's doom saying, telling her that since Vicky has arrived, they have had nothing but good fortune and that they should all rejoice now that the Greeks are gone. They notice that Vicky has slipped away and Paris suggests that she may have gone to the city square to watch the arrival of the wooden horse. Troilus says that he will go after her as he doesn't want her to be alone in the city. Cassandra also dispatches her handmaid, Katerina, to find her, as she does not trust Troilus to be objective in case her suspicions prove true. The journey into the city is not the smoothest for the Greek infiltrators, and once the horse is brought to rest in the city square, 
Odysseus commands them all to be silent lest they reveal themselves. Outside in the square, Cassandra is undeterred in her belief that it represents the fall of Troy. Prime goes to take a closer look at it, partially to put her at ease, but mainly to gaze at this gift from the gods. Meanwhile, Vicky and Stephen, who she released from the dungeons, are observing the horse from a hiding place. Stephen says that the people will not be so joyful when the Greeks emerge from it later that night. He also relays his belief to Vicky that the doctor is inside it, as he would logically assume it to be the best way of reuniting with them and returning to the TARDIS. Stephen wonders why the doctor didn't delay the construction that he had requested, but then realises that maybe the Cyclops didn't make it true to him. They suddenly notice Katarina coming in their direction and hide from sight. Stephen suggests that she go back to the others while he hides as she shouldn't be risk getting caught with him. He also teases her that it would make Troilus jealous if they were caught together, which makes Vicky angry and he quickly apologises. He advises that if she truly cares for him, then she will tell him to leave the city before nightfall, which causes Vicky to remember the impending slaughter. Troilus rejoins his family and informs him of Stephen's disappearance. Cassandra insists that it was Vicky and again demands that both she and the horse be burnt. Vicky approaches them and the family again bicker over her motivations what to do with her. She feigns ignorance when they asked about Stephen's release and Prime absolves her of any guilt. He tells his children to follow him so that they may make a public announcement about the horse but Cassandra orders Katarina to stay behind and watch Vicky. Vicky watches them leave and prays that the future does not unfold as it is meant to. In the horse, Odysseus states that he hopes Agamemnon and Achilles will die during the invasion so that he may reap the greater share of the rewards and that his only motivation for joining the war in the first place was for personal gain. The doctor is disgusted with his ideals and demands to be let out of the horse but Odysseus threatens to kill him if he does not shut up. Left with no other choice, the doctor waits for night to fall. In the palace, Troy sneaks past the sleeping Katarina and goes to Vicky, who was looking at the horse from the balcony. Vicky tells him that he should leave the city and try to recapture Stephen, ostensibly to claim a share in the Paris's glory, but really to spare him from the Greek attack. Troyus questions her reason for wanting him out of the city, but she insists that he leave as soon as possible. Troyus agrees to go and promises her that everything will be alright. However, once he arrives in the plains, he finds Achilles and begins to wonder if Vicky has betrayed him. He then uses this as an opportunity to avenge his brother Hector's death and the two begin to duel. Troilus gains the upper hand after Achilles catches his heel in a bit of scrub and is mortally wounded as a result. With his last ounce of strength, Achilles hurls his sword at Troilus, severely wounding him. Troilus then begins to make his way back to the city, hoping to gain vengeance for the perceived betrayal by Vicky. After midnight, the Greek infiltrators leave the horse and set about dispatching the sentries so that they can open the gates. The Greek forces flood into the city and Paris rushes to join his family, hastily attempting to barricade the doors as he explains what happened. Cassandra laments that they did not listen to her as the doors are thrown open as Odysseus enters and orders his men to take them captive. He kills Prime in Paris and orders Cassandra to be taken to Agamemnon, but before she is dragged away, Cassandra prophesizes that Odysseus will not see his home again for another ten years. Outside, Vicky and Katerina have escaped from the palace and encountered a doctor, who is delighted to see them safe and asks where Stephen is. Vicky urgently tells Katarina to retrieve Stephen from his hiding place, while she desperately tries to get the doctor into the TARDIS so she can tell him something. After a short while, she exits the ship with a sad look on her face. She looks upon the ship and gives it a hug before making her way back towards the city. The doctor appears in the doorway and watches her go with a concerned look on his face. Stephen is fighting for his life against a Trojan soldier. He is badly wounded in the shoulder, but is saved by a passing Greek soldier before the death blow is struck. Katarina arrives and helps the wounded Stephen to his feet so that they can go back into the TARDIS. They arrive back and the doctor ushers them both inside so that he can see to Stephen's wound. Before he leaves, he is approached by Odysseus, who intends to take the TARDIS as a spoil of war. The doctor tells him that he's had enough of him and enters the ship, leaving Odysseus to wonder if he really was Zeus as the ship dematerializes. On the plains, Troilus watches the sack of his city and wonders aloud if Vicky could have betrayed them. 
Vicky arrives and tells him that she did not cause the fall of Troy and that Stephen has gone away again. As they ponder their uncertain future together, they are approached by Troilus's cousin Aeneas and a group of horsemen, and Vicky tells Troilus that their future li- lies with him, seemingly aware of his cousin's destiny. In the TARDIS, a delirious Stephen asks after Vicky, worried about her being caught between the Greeks and the Trojans, but the doctor assures him that she will be alright. He tells Stephen that she wanted to stay with Troilus and tells Katerina to look after him. He educates Katerina that he is not a god, as Vicky had implied, and she is not dead, and that she may call him the doctor. After he says a silent goodbye to Vicky, he attempts to figure out where he can go to get medicine and help for Stephen. End of the story. So now that's the story recap out of the way, we're going to go over to Trish for some trivia notes. Over to you, Trish. Thank you very much. So, the air date for the Mythmakers was the 16th of October, 1965, to the 6th of November, 1965. The writer for the story was Donald Cotton. This is the first of two Doctor Who stories for Donald. We'll also see his work in The Gunfighters. Donald wrote the target novelisation for both this story and The Gunfighters, as well as The Romans. Donald passed away in 1999. The director for the story is Michael Leaston Smith. This is Michael's only Doctor Who story, making one of only three directors for whom none of his episodes survive, the others being Hugh David and John Davies. Michael passed away back in 2001. This story introduces new producer John Wilde, who took over the reins from Verity Lambert, who we discussed last week. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned with Michael, so this is another missing story. Again. All four episodes of this story are lost, but some material from episodes one, two, and four exists in the form of home movie clips shot by someone filming the television when it was on telly. <laughs> so once again, for this review, we have to give our big thanks to the team over at Loose Cannon, who have done mm-hmm. a recreation using the story audio, those, as aforementioned, movie clips, as well as photographic material from the shoot. Yeah. This was Peter Purvis's favourite story, and I can see why, given what he got to do in the story. It's a very yeah. sort of action-packed story for him. There the was actually, man. yeah, there was actually an exchange between Vicky and Katarina in the Horse of Destruction that was cut. So in this sequence, the two discuss how Katarina came to become a handmaiden. Obviously, talking about you know the high priestess and stuff, and Katarina reveals that an augur foretold her imminent death which helps make her conversation with the doctor where she's saying am i dead and her apparent easy acceptance of that it helps make Mm. more sense yeah because i was really fucking confused (laughs) when i watched this first time (laughs) william hartnell did not have a good time on this story to say the least so let's go down through it okay he was hit by a camera during the filming of Temple of Secrets, resulting in a bruised shoulder. As if that wasn't bad enough, possibly the worst part of it was his aunt, who had looked after him when he was growing up, passed away while they were working on the story. Hmm. But because of the really tight scheduling, he couldn't make it to her funeral. I think that's as well, like, uh, uh, one of the worst things about it is that, like, you can't, you don't get a chance to say goodbye to at the funeral. Yeah, and apparently it made him incredibly irritable on set. For completely understandable fucking reasons, I would be too. Do you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like Also around this this time, his health was really beginning to deteriorate. 
So he was forgetting his lines and all that other stuff. All this together made him very difficult to work with on the story and resulted in him calling the director a fool, which may explain why that director never came back. Hmm. Additionally, as if that wasn't enough, he was very unhappy with what he perceived to be the Doctor's reduced role in the story. And he felt that he was being upstaged by some of the guest stars, particularly Francis de Wolf and Max Adrian. And apparently he refused to speak to either of them. I had heard something about um, him not speaking to Max Adrian, but it, like there's different uh, different stories. Like one is um, that, like what I heard is just like they never had a reason to talk to each other because they only shared the screen like a, for like a couple of minutes. Yeah, so there's a rumor that it had to do with I think Max Adrian is Jewish. Yes, that isn't true. It has nothing no. to do with that. It is purely. No. William Hartnell kind of had his hackles up during the shoot and thought that yeah. these guest actors were getting more screen time than he was and he was deleting the show. Yeah, and as we've discussed previously, it's Hartnell seems like the kind of guy that never brought his beliefs to work with him. No, but he had plenty of other things that sometimes made him very difficult to work with. Yeah, exactly. So we'll go on to our cast. We have a very long cast list, so let's get started. Mm-hmm. So first off, Achilles. Achilles is played by Cavan Kendall. This is Kevin's only Doctor Who role. His other acting credits include The Railway Children, Softly Softly, The Enchanted Castle and Blood Money. Kevin passed away in 1999. Odysseus is played by Igor Saltor. Now we previously discussed Igor when we talked about the Space Museum where he played the Morak commander. And we will get to see Igor again in Black Orchid. Agamemnon is played by the previously mentioned Francis de Wolfe. We previously mentioned Francis de Wolfe when we talked about the Keys of Marinus, where he plays one of my least favourite characters in the history of Doctor Who ever, Vassor. Yes, eyebrow man. Yes. Evil eyebrow man. Yeah, evil, creepy, sexual assault man. This is his final Doctor Who acting credit. However, he has had an amazing acting career. His other acting credits include The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Avengers, The Saint, Dixon of Doc Green, Treasure Island, Scrooge, The Hound of the Baskerville, From Russia with Love, and Carry On Cleo. Um, one of our listeners Shane commented on our Twitter post that he was like looking forward to seeing which of our guest stars appeared in Zed Cars and then like it was you replied saying that we have to think of other stuff for the the Doctor Who bingo card so I think the Avengers is definitely one of them yeah I think we can start adding Avengers to the bingo card definitely yeah so Shane keep an ear out for the Avengers yeah Francis passed away back in 1984 then we have Menelaus who's played by Jack Melford. This is Jack's only Doctor Who acting credit. His other acting credits include Birds of a Feather, The Lady Killers, The Adventures of Sir Robin Hood, Bingo Time with Zed Cars, <laughs> Emergency Ward 10, and Softly Softly. Jack passed away in 1972. Cyclops is played by, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Tute Lemko? T-U-T-T-E. Yeah. Sorry, maybe it's just too, maybe maybe it's just Toot. Maybe it's just Toot. Sorry if I've mispronounced that. This is the third on-screen appearance for him. He was also Kuju in Marco Polo and Ibrahim in the Crusade. He was also the choreographer for the Celestial Toymakers. His other acting credits include Corrigan Blake, The Avengers, Upstairs Downstairs, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, cool. So in Raiders of... I actually looked this up because I was curious. In Raiders of Lost Ark, he's the guy who translates the medallion for Indy. 
Well, then mm. Indy's like, they're digging in the wrong place. Yeah, he's the guy that translates the medallion. <laughs> and take one back for the Hind- for the Hebrew god. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Whose arc this is. Yeah. He passed away back in 1991. Priam is played by Max Adrian. This is Max's only Doctor Who appearance. Again, if he had such a cold welcome from the Doctor, I can maybe see why. Mm-hmm. He was a theatre actor at the time and was really quite well known. His other acting credits include the Oliver Twist TV miniseries where he played Fagan, Point Counterpoint, Up Pompeii, the miniseries by George Bernard Shaw, and the film adaptation of the musical The Boyfriend. Max passed away in 1973. Cassandra is played by Frances Weiss. This is Cassandra's only Doctor Who acting credit, and apparently she was really upset because she kind of hoped the Daleks would be in it. And she was really upset that they weren't. (laughs) Her other acting credits include Moonstrike, Mary Queen of Scots, another bingo mention for Zed Cars, May to December, and um, Paddy's least favourite children's programme. Yes. She plays Granny Pig in Peppa Pig. Moving swiftly on. Her best-known role is that of Julia in I, Claudius. Which is an excellent series that I would highly recommend to anyone. Mm. It's got Patrick Stewart with hair. Hair, people. (laughs) It's like seeing Bigfoot ride a unicorn. Paris is played by Barry Ingham. This is Barry's only television Doctor Who appearance. He was also Ah. in Doctor Who and the Daleks, the movie adaptation of the story of the Daleks, where he played Aladon. Oh. Barry is best known for playing Basil of Baker Street in Disney's The Great Mouse Detective. I'm looking forward to watching that movie at some point. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in years. I've never seen it fully. Have you not? It's really no. good. Barry passed away back in 2015. Troilus is played by James Lynn. This is James's only Doctor Who acting credit. And to be honest, I could find very little about him online. His acting credits start in 1965 with Herod or Gaff. An end in 1967 with an episode of ITV Playhouse. And I couldn't find any other information about him. Mm. Lastly, we have Katarina, who is now travelling with the Doctor and Stephen. She is played by Adrian Hill. And I'm going to leave Katarina to... Or rather, I'm going to leave Adrian till next week. We can spend a bit more time talking through her past and her other performances. Lastly, this is Vicky's last story. Yes. However... Unlike Caroline Ford, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill, who all left the show before her, Maureen O'Brien did not choose to leave. When we talked about Galaxy 4, we said that John Wells did not take the criticism the actors had for that story very well, and that this hastened Maureen's exit from the show. They simply just didn't renew her contract at the end of the story. Which is fairly shitty-like, because... Yeah, I know, it's just like an executive flexing their bit of muscle... Yeah, and like the idea that, you know, she was effectively fired because she questioned things about the story is just like, oh, get off, get over yourself. Hmm. Thankfully, though, this isn't the last we hear of Maureen as Vicky, as she has recorded numerous stories for Big Finish. And I will say she's one of the few actors on Big Finish who, no matter what story it is, you don't have to stretch your mind to believe that it's Vicky. Obviously, actors age, so their voices change ever so slightly. Maureen, it's just, it is Vicky. And yeah. you can tell right from the off. And her performances in those are always so amazing. She's very, very good. Yeah, I listened to one a couple of years ago called Frostfire. And it's it's one of the companion chronicles where the companion narrates the entire story. 
Oh, so good. Mm. And like she again, like it's like you're listening to Maureen in 1960 London, 1965. <laughs> 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 yeah, but no, so like definitely, um, if you liked Vicky, um, then definitely check out her big finish stuff. So we have come to the time in the show where we discuss our characters. We'll be going through the Doctor, the Companions, the Villains. And in this story, similar to what we did for the Crusade, we're going to have a separate piece for the sort of principal historical characters. They'll get their own little section. So starting off with the Doctor. Paddy, what were your thoughts on the Doctor in this story? you You really love to land, you know feet first in the shit don't you like, <laughs> like <laughs> um he really does like but i i thought this was a kind of a strange story because the doctor comes across as very comical in this one it's like there's two guys outside having a duel to the death i wonder where they're doing it i know i'll go check you stay here i'll be perfectly fine <laughs> also like the wooden horse of try is a ridiculous idea Meanwhile, catapulting people into <laughs> the <an> sky <laughs> with, with essentially with strapped to paper, like oversized paper airplanes, is perfectly fine. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I I was like, you're 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 just not with it today, are you? But um, he does seem to be kind of taking a back seat in this story. I thought he like kind of like he had a bit of a reduced presence. Because like we're focusing mainly on Stephen, uh, like it's splitting, like obviously splitting between the companions and the Doctor is always a thing, but now we're not only just splitting between companions, kind of like in the Crusade, we're splitting between two factions at war. Yeah. Like and again, like in the Crusade, I think that I think everything with man- with that was managed fine because the main part of it was Ian trying to reclaim Barbara while the Doctor was trying to absorb history, will not get caught up in its mechanisms well this is interesting because the fall of troy it's like one of those things that's gone on for years is it actually a historical thing was troy did it exist and did you know did the invasion ever happen uh was there ever a big horse (laughs) 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 did gods come down and punch people in the face um but he's also kind of odysseus really does have a physical menacing presence mm. and it's it seems at times that the doctor is backing down from him but i don't know whether that's from genuine like self-concern or if it's if i piss this guy off enough he'll stop me from helping my friends yeah no i get, I get what you mean there yeah. it's i think it's a little column a, a little column b yeah but like again i just thought like it was a really like we'll get to it new overall because i think the doctor's he he perfectly matches the tone of this in that it's a bit more comical than what we've seen, but it do, it's not it, it doesn't grow, it, it's almost presented like it's not meant to be comical. I don't know. Yeah, no, I get that as well. Like one yeah. of the things that I find interesting about this story is that it is a bit comical, so it has like the comicy elements from the Romans. Yeah, but then it tries to bring in the serious components from the Crusade. It's like yeah. The, the, they don't really meld well together. Do you know? No. Like, you're literally taking those two stories, squishing them together, adding in a myth on top of it, and then 
there's your story yeah so i don't know if his character really fits with that and like the i'll get to it later on in the overall when i talk about vicky's leaving but just to touch on it the range that he goes through from the comical to the belligerent at one point understandably to the way he is at the end it's a very weird arc for him that can tonally is quite odd though the one thing i would say is and this is something that i haven't really mentioned before and maybe we should consider it is that when we talk about like characters having massive tonal issues from you know one moment to the next you and i should maybe consider the fact that these stories were written to be viewed a week apart whereas we watch them in one go well like i see what you're saying all right like and i remember making comments back um in an earthly child that barbara kind of seemed to flip-flop as they, but we've also seen other stories where yeah it's a week apart but everyone's been very consistent the entire way through the story like even some like you know like the six and seven parters so yeah yeah I mean, I think, maybe in certain cases maybe it's just oh yeah, yeah in certain 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 cases yeah um yeah. but like, this does sound like very much like the exorcist shoot for you know doctor who in terms of it's plagued with all this type of stuff yeah, and just and when you were saying there about you know William Hartnell, you know his like deteriorating health and his moods, all that kind of stuff, it's important. It's important to let people know that this is what was going on, but at the same time, it shouldn't define him because I've known certain people that whenever the concept of whenever the discussion of William Hartnell, the first doctor, comes up, that's their go-to. That it was like oh you know he was, you know, he had like um was arteriosclerosis which caused the uh, yeah like oh you know billy flubs and this whole thing i'm like so that's everything that you're taking away from this guy's three-year run on the show his yeah. health issues which, ca- which is ridiculous because like i have yeah. i have one of his flubs written here right yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think you put it in as like i don't know what it was meant to be it was when he's telling katarina he's like i am not a god does yeah. he say i am not a dog well, you know, God spells backwards as dog, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's some flubs of his that you you can't miss them. <laughs> there's like, you're not a what now. No. Yeah. But what made him such an amazing actor is that he just kept going. Yeah. He just kept going. You know, if you watch blooper reels of TV shows now, if someone flubbed a line like that, they'd have to reset and do the thing again. He just kept going because yeah. he knew they were on the clock. They had to get it done. He was a professional and he ploughed on through it. So no one can make fun of Bill for his flubs. No. And to be fair, as we've mentioned before, like the time and effort he took to mark down what every single button on the TARDIS control console did. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, like, but moving back to the doctor himself in this story, uh, I, I suppose bottom line is it's a bit of a weird showing for him. Yeah. The other thing that I find <laughs> so interesting about the Doctor is what did the Doctor tell Barbara in the Aztecs? You can't rewrite history not one line. Yeah, and he seemed a bit miffed that she was impersonating a deity. Though he did support her in that impersonation because yeah. it kept him alive. And yet he has no issue impersonating Zeus. <laughs> And then we realise that not only did he inspire the great fire of Rome, he also created the Trojan horse. No, this this is something that's very interesting. We have our very first bootstrap paradox in Doctor Who. Yes, we do. Because the only reason he thought of the horse is because he knew the myth of the horse. Yes, and when he says that the uh, Homer more than likely made it up because it seems like a ridiculous notion. Yeah. 
Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. But I, I just I just love the fact that like he's like, I am Zeus. I will kill this man tomorrow at my temple. Take me back to my temple because I am Zeus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, I just imagine him like throwing out like one of those shitty magician puff, you know, smoke bomb. <laughs> Quick, get inside, get inside. Yeah, so I think in this story we see a lot of, we see the funny Bill, we see the cantankerous Bill, and we see sad, worried Bill at the end, which we don't see all that often. I kind of like sad, worried Bill. It's nice to show that the Doctor has a heart, um, mm. in the fact that he's so concerned for Stephen. Yeah. But yeah, I'll I'll get to my issues with his dealing of Vicky's departure later when yeah. we discuss that in more detail. Cool. So we move on to Stephen in the sing song way that we're talking now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we move on to Stephen. Um I'm still trying find it very difficult to engage with Stephen, I'll be honest. Mm. He has some good moments, recognizing he had to get the right clothes. Good man. Mm-hmm. Good man. He's a very good actor, both Peter Purvis and Stephen. Yeah. Again, though, we mentioned in was it in the Myth Makers? We mentioned that he was maybe doing a me man, you woman, me protect thing with Vicky. You mean the time meddler? Because we're now in the Myth Makers. Yeah, time meddler. That's the one. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so in the time meddler, we kind of talked about how. Was there a little bit of maybe unintentional sexism there? Yeah. And in that story, we said no, that it was more uh, Vicky as a child. Yeah. It comes up again, though, in this story. You have hurt your ankle, so you can't go anywhere. So Vicky's locked in a box for an episode and a half. And I'm like, dude, what the hell? Like... Okay, what I will say to that is, like, obviously, if, if someone is hurt... You don't want that person going into a situation that w- would require them to potentially run on a bad ankle. At the same time, though, he knows that Vicky is more than capable of handling herself in that regard. So give her the benefit of the doubt. Plus, you're a big, strong lad. You can always just ho- hoist her over her sh- your shoulder and fucking peg it. Yeah, I mean, like, and she calls him on it later when they're in mm. the prison cells. She's like, I can take care of myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> so that part of Stephen, it still, it still gets me. I, I don't know. Now that Vicky's gone, I wonder, it might change, do you know? Like, maybe I was just so used to the way Vicky was with other people that a new dynamic coming in, maybe it's just taking me a little while to get used to it. Um, the one thing that I will say about Stephen, though, is even though he can come across as being quite mean to Vicky in mm. some of the ways that he treats her, in the sense of, like, you no, fucking stay here, do you know, and it can come across quite mean. He clearly cares about her a lot. And I sort of see it as like a big brother, younger sister type dynamic. Like he's willing to take the piss out of her about Troilus. Yeah. But as soon as he realized that she was actually genuinely upset and like concerned about him, he was like, no, go find him and get him out of the city. Yeah, like I kind of thought like you know, he's a typical like a typical lad in the sense like that you're like, oh, you like a fella that you're know, like, take the piss out of her type thing. And then you realize you've stepped overstepped, and you're like, "Okay, shit, back it up, look, yeah, you know, go get him." Um, and like at the end, when he was delirious, and all he could think about was Vicky and her safety, mm. and you know, you get the sense that you know because he was the elder of the two, maybe because he was the guy of the group or whatever, he took his role as protector of her very, very seriously. Yeah, 
And so the idea that he's back in the TARDIS and he doesn't see Vicky anywhere and all he can think is where the fuck is she? That is really good. So maybe my issues with Stephen are just because I was so used to Vicky's interactions with Barbara and Ian that I found this new dynamic a little bit hard to to grasp. Yeah, because he... This is a thing now that I funny you mentioned uh, Ian and Barbara in the sense I've I've said like that in this story Stephen seems to have taken over the action man role from Ian but he's also inherited Barbara's uh, level of bullshittery you know it's like, oh, oh yeah oh <laughs> Paris you're a you're a mighty warrior you're a vi-. also I would just there are there are times in this story that I'm so annoyed that it's missing because I would just love to see him like fighting Paris kind of going oh you win oh you got me that type of shit yeah but um not the way uh, you were saying there about the new dynamics is that we are now in on we're now in unexplored territory because the way it you know when it started it was susan ian and barbara and the doctor yeah and then it became the doctor ian barbara and vicky and then we moved to now we were just after coming out of the Barbara, Vicky and Stephen capacity. So we've now lost that tangential link that you had from Susan to Reiterton and then from Reiterton to Vicky. And now that Vicky is gone, the the last connections to the first crew are completely are completely gone. So he's now going to be traveling with people that have never been exposed to what Ian and Barbara and Susan brought to the tar- to the TARDIS. Don't make the pouty face. You're making me sad, Dan. But yeah, no, I I feel really bad because I think I'm giving him, I think I'm being a bit overly critical of him. And I don't mean to be. It's just I find it really hard to get fully invested with him. There's things I love, but yeah. there's things that fucking do my nut. But it's it's the nature of, I suppose, like new incoming characters like that. Like we had what? We had 16 stories with two characters that are in our top three, our top five companions of all time. And like you, know, we we what we spent nearly we spent over an hour discussing them on a ramblings episode. We're now even discussing them on a story they're not even in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting used to new people is always tough because you're always going to have to have that measuring stick with them. Yeah, and like like I like I'm, I agree with you like that's like it is kind of tough to get on board with Stephen at times. He has some really good qualities, but he's also got some really annoying qualities. And now is like we're going to move on. It's Stephen is the long term person, mm. so we're going to have to see how he carries on with any new companion that comes on board and his interactions with the Doctor. Yeah. So, I think our judgment will be kind of set in stone going forward. Yeah, and speaking of new companion, so we'll mm-hmm. do Vicky last, but yeah, we do have a new traveler in the TARDIS at the end of this episode. We do, and that is Katarina. Mm. I don't have a whole lot of notes on Katarina, I'll be honest. I have one line. Yeah. She seems like a nice girl. Like that like she is. Like she's innocent. She's sweet and innocent. And it'll be interesting now to see a non future based or contem- contemporary time period based companion on the ship. Because yeah. Because she she thinks that she is in Olympus and that the doctor is Zeus. Yeah. Good so, luck explaining that one. Yeah, so it's like this is going to be a very interesting thing because are we going to see this whole thing of like you know like for the last time, child? This that is not Lord Hades; that is just an Undertaker. <laughs> 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 just like 
like that sort of scenario. Stop calling Stephen Apollo. You'll give him a big head. Yep. But yeah, it, she was kind of shoehorned in at the end because obviously they mm. wanted to write out Vicky. I I don't really have an opinion of her as of yet. She seems nice. Yeah, yeah. I I know. I I think like she'll she'll be interesting because yeah. the the dynamic note that they're going to have would be very interesting because you have Stephen, who is from the far future, and you've got Katerina, who's from the very far past. Yeah. Yeah. So, Vicky. Yeah, or Cressida, whichever <laughs> you wish to call her. Now, I'll be honest, right? Yep. I should. I probably should have said this earlier, but I'll say it now. My knowledge of this mythological period <laughs> <laughs> is non-existent. So it wasn't until later that I realized that Cressida was actually a person <laughs> from the myth. <laughs> and so I had a note being like, why the fuck did they change her name? Why Why did they have to change her name? I did do some research, though, mm. on something else. I didn't research Cressida because it didn't bother. Yeah. But I researched Vicky is obviously derivative of the name Victoria. Yes. And I was like, why would they find that w- a weird name? Victoria was a Roman name. So ancient Greeks probably wouldn't be familiar with it. Because at this stage, Rome was not founded. And that's why I said in the summary that uh, Vicky more than likely knows uh, the destiny of Troyus's cousin Aeneas. Because Aeneas is the non, supposedly the non-legendary founder of Rome. Because again, I, I I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, like that, that's the type of thing. Like or, like, again, I suppose with stuff like the Crusade, like the Aztecs, it was just in the period of the time period of the Aztecs. Yeah. Whereas, like with stuff like Marco Polo and with the Crusades, you're dealing with actual historical figures, and we didn't really do historical figures back in Marco Polo because I suppose they were so integral to the. Yeah, actual, they were. They were the story companion were, yeah. and the. And so the, like. You you try to do the summary with, you can't really kind of, me who like has studied history, I can't really kind of go, oh yeah, they did this, and it's like, well, like what the fuck does that mean? Like it means nothing. So you're trying to explain it as much as possible. Uh, whereas this like this is like half. Well, it is it is a myth. Yeah. So cycling cycling back around to Vicky. <laughs> Sorry, I went yeah, off on a yeah. tangent there. She was in a box for an episode and a half. Yep. What the hell? Um, Feet good off, choice again. Scones. Good choice again. Getting a change of clothes. She mm-hmm. clearly learned that from the doctor in the crusade. But also, like, you know, we, from our perspective, she was in there for an episode and a half. She was in there overnight. Well, she just sat there just looking at the scanner overnight. Yeah. Random. Although, I suppose this isn't the first time that she got taken away in the TARDIS. It happened to her before. Yeah. <laughs> in the web planet. So. <laughs> One of the things I like about Vicky, though, is that, like... You know, unlike the Doctor or even, you know, Barbara or Ian or Stephen in the story or Susan in my was, she just comes out and tells the truth. She just walks out the door she's like, oh yeah, I'm from the future. How's it going? And it's just no concept of cover story. No, nah, I'm from the future. I love like you was like, do you have the gift of prophecy? I don't know. I haven't taken exams in that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. She's brilliant. I love it. Um, yeah. Also, like, trying to distract Priam by complimenting his son. Clearly mm. that worked for a while. And in, in a lot of this story, you know, she is, like, a typical teenager. And we've said that with Vicky in mm. previous stories, where she has, like, typical teenager moments. Yeah. And in this one, you know, with Stephen taking the piss out of her about Troilus, you can see her having that sort of, like, shut up, like, yeah. <laughs> typical response. 
playing with the ponytail and you're shut off. He's not yeah, that cute. I like him. Stop being weird. Um, before we discuss her exit, what were your thoughts on her just as a whole for the story? I I enjoyed her in the story. I really did because, as you said, like it's just like that matter of fact way we like we've known Vicky, you know, very straight to the point. Um, her flattery skills like they're up there with Barbara's bullshitting skills are amazing and it's like oh I've nearly let slip about this event that I'm not meant to know about anyway back to your really handsome son <laughs> what, what was that you were saying um, I think it was interesting alright that uh, we've now come she's now faced with potentially the, being the one to divert the course of history um, yeah. but also it's interesting because she has a personal stake in it because he would, you know, would again, person that has now no, not with us, with Barbara, it was a desire to fix a perceived wrong. Yeah. Whereas this is, she has now become attracted to someone in that time period. That she would like that she's torn between following the doctor's edict, because she knows that's the right thing to do, but also following her own emotions and feelings. So I thought that made for a very interesting story. Yeah, and in fact, she did try. You know, yeah. she did try and keep the whole idea of the horse to herself and stuff like that, you know. Hmm. And she was like, you know, I'm from the future, but like, um, I can't prophesize what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Like, that's not a thing. And one thing I did like in that regards was that, you know, she uses her innocent nature to try and to stay safe, mm. but she doesn't manipulate anyone to like do her bidding with her sweet and innocent nature. No. No. So her exit yeah i i want i really want to know what that conversation was in the tardis i like because like we 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 saw like the doctor said goodbye to his own granddaughter by locking her out of the tardis and saying goodbye for her own good that this is and he would come back he fucking raged at the notion of barbara and ian leaving yep and we have a conversation behind closed doors and just Vicky looking mournfully back at the TARDIS as she moves away and then he looks sadly after her. It's like, did he rage? Did he comfort? Did he uh, did he object? Did he do this and the other? The fact that this story is missing adds another level of annoyance to this because we, do, we don't get to see actually her emotions or even William Hartnell's emotions as she leaves yeah and we don't really get to see her relationship with Troilus build up either Hmm. and first the guys from Loose Cannon they did the best they could to put in you know cutesy pictures of them together and stuff like that to try and get the point across but this was such a fucking stupid exit like and and like as well like that you know with um, Susan the groundwork had been laid throughout a couple of stories that she was getting homesick and that she wanted to settle down somewhere and then she met a boy that she liked. Boy meets a girl. Girl meets a boy. Um, and then she's torn between being given the opportunity to have what she wants versus her loyalty to her grandfather. So my issue with this, right? Mm-hmm. And just for our listeners' benefit, I finished watching this last night. I literally messaged Paddy straight away and went, what the fuck was that? Because, okay... They're basically redoing what they did with Susan. Literally, you know, oh, 
she fell in love and so she's leaving right the difference between susan and vicky is that while they're meant to be perceived to be the same age which by the way we get confirmed in this story is no older than 16 Mm -hmm. because troilus says that he's not 17 yet so she's no older than 16 Susan, we never really understood if she was actually 16 or if she was the Gallifreyan equivalent of 16. I mean, we, Susan we could have been 250 Gal- we, for all we do. We don't know about Gallifrey yet. Shh, shh. But we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like 16 for Susan could have been yeah. the equivalent of a 25-year-old in the yeah. doctor's society. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Vicky, we do know. She's human. And she's a little kid. As in, she's a 16-year-old kid. And she's treated like a child a lot. So, for her to be left behind, to be with a boy she's known a grand total of a day and a half, I found ridiculous. And the other reason why it pissed me off when compared to Susan is the Dalek invasion of Earth was a longer story. Mm -hmm. And we see Susan and David together for a prolonged period of time. They talk, they obviously go to fight the Daleks together, she makes him fish, <laughs> you know, they're joking with each other, they're playing around, they kiss, we don't know if Vicky and Troilus kiss ever, but like, their relationship gradually develops over the course of the story. In this story, Vicky randomly mentions that he's good looking, and then in prison is like, oh I actually really fancy him. And went from that to I'm staying behind to be with him. That's some Twilight fucking shit. Yeah. And it really pisses me off. And what pisses me off even more is that like we don't get to see her exit on screen. As in, we don't get that conversation, which really bothers me. It bothers me about Barbara and Ian as well. We don't get to see the Doctor's reaction. But also, I can't believe the Doctor left her. I, I genuinely can't. Because... Again, comparing it to Susan, I don't mean to compare it the whole time, but this is what was really pissing me off last night. The Doctor, in many ways, had vetted David. He had met him, he had seen the way David was with Susan, he had seen the way they were together, and he trusted him. The Doctor has never fucking met Troilus. And maybe Vicky said to him, they call me Cressida, you know what happens with Cressida and Troilus. Yada, yada, yada. But the idea that the doctor, who is so protective of Vicky, would leave her there, it fucking blows my mind. Also, isn't Troilus and Cressida a tragedy? So I, I don't know. Like, is it? You know I happens. don't know. <laughs> I, I think it is. They're like, you know what happens. Yes, I do. That's why you're not going with that boy. Yeah, I mean, it... <laughs> It fucking boggles the mind. It it really yeah. does. Um, and as I said, there was no like groundwork laid for her desire to be with someone or find something. No, she actually... The distinct opposite. We have had several instances. We had it in the Crusade. We had it um, at the beginning of the Time Meddler. We have it later on in the Time Meddler. Where she says time and again, she wants to stay with the Doctor. The idea of him leaving her behind upsets her and scares her so for her to have this complete fucking 180 that she would rather stay in ancient fucking greece doesn't 
this girl is from like the 24th century what the fuck yeah. is she gonna do with ancient greece take over <laughs> yeah it's just, oh no it it bothered so, me it bothered me rather than spoil the rest of your day how about we move on to the <laughs> villains and we're not going to include the producer okay yeah. we're going to just, just the story based villains this is paddy speak for trish calm the fuck down yeah so moving on to our villains uh we kind of have two so we have a villain for the doctor and steven and then we have a villain for vicky yes so will we do the doctor and steven's villain first yes we do so that is odysseus yeah so i've kind of i put down you yeah you 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 should never meet your heroes (laughs) they're just going to turn out to be douchebags what odysseus kind of reminds me of is that when you go to a convention that you know an actor you really like is going to be at and then they turn out to be a bit of an asshole. That's like, mm. uh, and that's what it was here with Odysseus because with Odysseus, like in everything, you're always giving him his portrayal of a very noble king. Like he's very, he's very wise. He's very noble. He's like steadfast in the heat. Oh, he obviously he's loyal to Agamemnon. That's why he's in the fucking war and so on. But in this, he's essentially just a drunken prick. He's he's a he's a big bully. Yeah, like, the only thing I have to base Odysseus off of is Mm. general sort of cultural knowledge, you know. And I do own a copy of the Odyssey, I've just never fucking read it. Um, General cultural knowledge, the Rick Riordan books, and the Mythos books by Stephen Fry. And that that is my knowledge of this. And also, like it should be pointed out that Sean Bean played him, so therefore, it's amazing Sean Bean didn't die in a movie. (laughs) <laughs> it's a it's a rarity in anything past the sharp series that sean bean doesn't die in something yeah so i i didn't know what to expect with odysseus mm. this was not fucking it yeah no like the way he makes fun of achilles as like oh yeah you totally killed him you totally found him didn't you whatever like aren't you on the same fucking side like what the hell i, I was just like he's just a dick and the doctor actually gives the perfect description for him, which is he's selfish, greedy, corrupt, cheap, and horrible. Yep. Like, like the the guys in Loose Cannon did a great job of like you know picking like the most like sleazy pictures of Igor <laughs> Salter as they possibly because he looks like he's just got the beer sweats constantly, like and he's just like ah. Um. Yeah. So like, as I said, yeah, never meet your heroes because yeah. I get the impression that. If it had been with, with a classical depiction of the figures from the the Iliad and the Siege of Troy, the Doctor and Odysseus would have gone on like a house on fire. Yeah. Was the Siege of Troy in the Iliad? Yes. Okay. The Odyssey Again, is... I that... have both of these. I've just never yeah. read them. <laughs> so the, Ili- the Iliad is the Siege of Troy. Oh, okay. Uh, the Odyssey is Odysseus's 10-year journey to get back home to his wife. And actually, that's one thing is that uh, the use of Cyclops in this yeah is, a, is actually very, is very clever. I think it's a really really cool clever because obviously the the Cyclops is uh, one of the first challenges that Odysseus has faced on his route home. Yeah, uh, so th- I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So then we have Cassandra. Yes. <laughs> Just shut up! Just shut up! <laughs> in fairness, right. Before we go yeah. into how much of a bitch this woman is, yeah, she was right. Oh yeah, it's they, but that's the thing. Apart again, it's like the tragedy of Cassandra is that because she's a she's a soothsayer. I think I think in the Iliad she's not actually a high priestess; she's just a soothsayer. Hmm. 
and people are like no fucking crazy Cassandra's at it again so her predictions are just kind of fucking flubbed off because the high priests are the one that are like you know oh we read the divine and like you know we're a-okay chief um whereas this she is kind of just painted as a vindictive bitch it's like wait no one can else have the i'm the only one that can have the view of prophecy here yeah no one else can be it and like she's very power hungry like the idea of another uh person with the gift of prophecy Hmm. like she's just like fuck to the no like that's not happening it's not happening at all which like again i have to go with stephen fry and rick Riordan for my knowledge Hmm. but like surely you can't be serious in this (laughs) in this mythological setting like Apollo had many priestesses of prophecy. Yeah, yeah. You know? And augury was a thing. Hmm. So why is she such a bitch? Is it because Vicky's pretty? And her brother is slightly fascinated and her dad is slightly fascinated with her? Or was it because she had a dream of Greeks invading in a wooden structure and suddenly this wooden fucking box is brought in and she's like what the shit see that's the thing is that like okay she had she there's no doubting that she has the vision she does have the gift of prophecy but the way that she treats vicky and the way that she reacts to vicky's arrival it's she comes across like a vindictive charlatan in the sense of like she doesn't have the gift of prophecy at all but because she's the she's a princess she's of royal blood the thought of someone else challenging that is no not gonna fucking fly yeah. I think if she had been more level headed as presumably a fucking high priestess with the gift of prophecy would be I think Vicky would have gotten the fucking chop oh yeah I think like yeah. I mean I would have been very interested like had they lent more into the reason why she is such a bitch even if they left her as a bitch but if they lent more into the fact that like her prophecies are usually true and the timing of this like if people had actually trusted her because of that or at least Mm. acknowledged it as something that is right from time to time yeah there's a there's a later story that um has the concept of uh prophets proving their abilities right then and there uh we'll get to that you know in a couple of years (laughs) (laughs) but i think that this would have been a, a good example to which like you know if cassandra had decided to make like some short current prophecies like that man is about to fall over in five four three two one then yeah. we would like because at the moment she just comes across as like a very fucking crazy um like a, oh what's the word i'm looking for um jealous thank you jealous that's the word <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like, no one can challenge my monopoly no one can challenge my position in this household and that that just seems to be her thing she does get one last victory though Mm. in that she again correctly predicts that Odysseus will not get home for another 10 years which I get the feeling he doesn't care no because this version of Odysseus couldn't give two thundering fucks (laughs) cool so let's move on to our historical characters Um, Mm. we'll go through these relatively quickly I think so starting off we have Agamemnon yeah my my first note for him is family honour yeah yeah Pretty all for much. family honor um so yeah i think he's pretty he's portrayed pretty spot on 
not as ruthless as you've kind of, we've again other portrayals would have him depicted but um other than that like i think francis the wolf did a really good job of getting across this king that wants to rule the world i <laughs> i imagine agamemnon would make a really good klingon oh yeah it's like family honor you know so what if we've been here for 10 years is the fucking principle of the thing i don't care that you don't want her back that's not the fucking point the point Kapla. was they took her so we're gonna <laughs> yeah. do this shit and then yeah. the way that he's saying to me like go challenge someone challenge hector hector's dead bollocks um yeah. ch- challenge paris challenge one of them go go <laughs> do a thing <laughs> yeah. go do it just just kill a trojan a trojan will be fine <laughs> But yeah, um, I, I I actually quite liked him. I'm a bit disappointed we didn't get to see more from the story because I actually quite liked him as a character. I thought he was really interesting. Yeah, and again, like it's like as we talked, we talked about Vassar, and the reason that Vassar is so effective is that Francis the Wolf, who primarily plays bad guys, is a great actor at playing the part. He's like Christopher Lee in that sense of like you know Christopher Lee cannot play a good guy because you just can't trust him. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even when he plays a good guy, it's like uh, there's somebody fucking shifty about you. <laughs> Um, so onto his brother, I suppose Menelaus, alcoholic idiot. Like this is a complete, you know, one eighty on the normal depictions of Menelaus. Like Menelaus is the king of Sparta, and Sparta has always been portrayed as like one of the toughest of the Greek city states. This is Sparta, pretty much minus the severe nudity and (laughs) just, um yeah but like this is like he's very laid back he's very effete he's almost like nero i think he's even less interested than nero was though yeah like nero enjoyed gluttony yeah but he also enjoyed power menelaus just wants to go for a fucking nap yeah like he, he just again like he just seems like and this is what i think is weird about the comedy nature of the the story is that like he just seems like a parody of menelaus but yeah. because we don't see um so much it's just like a like why did he even bother fucking portraying him counter to what he is going to be if he's not going to have an impact in the story yeah i'll tell you one thing as the Mm -hmm. king of sparta or the leader of sparta kratos Mm -hmm. would not put up with his shit oh no kratos would just be like you know you're not my king it's just you know kick (laughs) just spartan kick him off the the, the, off anything or into anything or just you know the i don't know just kratos would just poke him with a finger and he'd explode So then we're on to Achilles. Yes, on to the heel. Um. <laughs> I agree with the doctor that he's not very humble. However, again, I really liked him and I wish we'd seen more of him. Yeah, and like, again, another shift around from the normal character because, yes, he's not very humble because he's Achilles, the, one, the, the mightiest of the Greek warriors, you know? Yeah, exactly, flex. <laughs> <laughs> but in this one, like... He's very like very respectful to Agamemnon. Like in in the Iliad, they're like like they butt heads, and like you know, um, that's part of the reason that Patroclus dies is because Achilles refuses to fight, uh, refuses to fight, and Patroclus impersonates Achilles, and then he dies. So it's like you know, you fuck you, you fat bastard, you made my friend die, uh, that type of thing. But he's very like pious, and he's very respectful to his superiors, and it's. He's very, while he is not overly humble, he's a lot more humble than I was expecting. Mm. Achilles is a character. So there's a couple, every now and again, we have um, a story, you know, a one-off story character 
who you're like, I'd be interested to see what he'd be like traveling with the doctor. I'd be very interested to see how Achilles would travel with the doctor. Yeah, I, I, I'd be on board with that. Um, de- definitely of all the Greek characters, you'd be kind of the one that would definitely travel the best. I think. Mm. For however long before he'd charge a Dalek with his sword, and it's just like, well, bye bye, Achilles. <laughs> uh, shoot him in the heel. Shoot him in the heel. <laughs> what did you think of the in, of the inclusion of the heel? I, I whenever that's done, like whenever you're doing like a non mythological based uh, version of the Iliad, I'm always very curious to see how they're going to bring bring the the heel component into it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So that's it for the Greeks. Now on to the opposing team, the Trojans. Indeed, and we will start with their king, Priam. Cool. I pity this poor man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jesus Christ, like, why did I ever have kids? It's like, you know, why didn't I just pull out? Or why didn't I wear a Trojan? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they call them Trojans. For pretty much. Priam's regret. It's not, Priam's regret is not as catchy as just Trojan. <laughs> so, he just seems like, okay, I, th- I like the portrayal of Priam. Me too. Like, what? Well, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't come across as like a physically strong leader, like the type of guy that would carry the sword for his city. He does seem to be a ruler that wants the best for his city. Yeah, I would consider him to be like you know. Usually in storytelling, we have two types of leader. We have the physical leader, and we have mm-hmm. the mental leader. Yeah, the guy who thinks things through versus the guy who will lead everyone into battle. And he's more the guy who thinks things through. Mm-hmm. Um. He's very nice to Vicky, though I don't really understand why he changed her name, other than the fact that they wanted to get rid of Maureen O'Brien. Um, <laughs> and he's clearly very taken with her, you know, and he cares for her a great deal. And we, we sort of see that right from the off. You know, he's like, no, Cassandra, calm your tits. You know, she's fine. And I think had he, I think had we cut to a scene where he realised that... Vicky knew about the horse and knew about the danger that lied inside. Like, we see that Troilus was upset. Like, imagine Priam was probably devastated. Because mm. he put so much faith in her and he he trusted her so much. Yeah. That it's sort of like, in a way, it kind of reminds me of Oclock and Barbara in the Aztecs, where he has so yeah. much faith in her. <laughs> but, you know, he also wishes that her son, his sons had met someone like her. Hint, hint. Yes. <laughs> you like Troilus? That's fine. I can work with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although I will say like, there are times like where it seems like he just wants the war to end so he can go back to his garden patch as opposed to like, you know, my people no longer have to stru- suffer the toils of war. It's a case of, I really need to get my begonias in. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also like, I, I just want done with this bullshit. <laughs> like, seriously. Yeah. Never I have her of- constantly screaming about the end of the world. I have him like... Why couldn't they have killed Paris and not Hector? Because <laughs> we don't see Hector, so we don't know what he was like. But yeah, poor Prime. The never-ending waves of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we move on to the oldest of his surviving sons. Jesus Christ. Um, Again, not was what I was expecting. Paris was Orlando Bloom in the film Troy, right? Yes. This man is no Orlando Bloom. <laughs> no. I've put him down as bumbling Billy Big Bollocks. Yeah, it seems to me like everything he does is like, I have done this amazing thing. Wait, you don't think it's amazing? Oh, well, um, I, I think I think it's amazing. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Everyone ev- everyone, everyone, else said it uh, was amazing. Yeah. 
I'm cool. I, I do love, and like, I nearly, I nearly wet myself laughing at it. <laughs> when he's caught there, he's like, Achilles! And then he hears his own echo, and he's like, Achilles, come and find me. And he just starts whispering. I was just like, oh, it's so funny. He seems like he walked right out of a Monty Python film. Yeah, like, there was like, he seems, um, he comes across like, you know, like those like 1920s, 1930s, like British toffs, you know, like the high society guys. Mm-hmm. Like at one point when he's talking to Vicky, I was half expecting him to kind of go, I say you are a spiffing lady. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I can see him in like, he, he's, he's not the same portrayal, but like, do you know in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, where you've got like, yeah. Your bravey bold Sir Robin. I can imagine oh, them yeah. writing a version of that song about this iteration of Paris. Yeah. Bravely bold Sir Paris. You know, like, you bravely ran away away. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Shut up. <laughs> but except he did. <laughs> yeah, he was funny. I think he's probably where the humour landed quite well. Um, mm. And even though it's a, a departure from the previous iteration of Paris I had seen... I think it kind of worked. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's because Monty Python esque. I actually liked. I liked it. Yeah, because like, again, like, like you have certain portrayals of Paris, like because Paris is the one that like fucking starts the whole war by stealing Menelaus's wife. It's like there are times like where he's portrayed as like a fucking basically a a cowardly sex pest, mm. and it's like Hector is the real fucking person for Troy. Yep. Uh, then obviously. Uh, although I did think it was kind of interesting uh, that the fight between Hector and Achilles at the start it seems to be going Hector's way and Hector appears to be like the, the better warrior whereas like normally it's the other way around this story is all over the place <laughs> so should we move on to Priam's younger son Troilus Troilus yes now again I didn't know Cressida was a real real person in mythology mm-hmm. so I was just like is he really jealous of Stephen and does he think Vicky and Stephen are an item but I love the way he's like, oh, everyone will be really happy to hear that. So I wonder, like, if off screen, he's actually been yeah. talking to his father, being like, she's really nice. And they're yeah. like, oh, but like, she's clearly involved with Stephen. And like, they're all worried that she's actually like romantically involved with him. Like, well, if she's romantically involved with him, then she can't be romantically involved with you. And like, the whole family is concerned. <laughs> but see, yeah, because like, I don't think there, like, there is like anyone else, like when he kind of goes, oh, like they, yeah, <laughs> just kind of getting the shifty eyes. They won't like that. And which point Vicky kind of goes, well, they have nothing to worry about. <laughs> oh, oh, good. They will be, oh, just knock it off already. <laughs> yeah. In fairness, he seems like a nice kid. He is. Like, of all of the characters, like, he's the least well known to me because like, I did read Troilus and Cressida like, fucking donkeys ago. And I know that like, Troilus like, and Cressida and Diomedes have like a bit of a love triangle type thing. So it's always kind of coo- uh, cool that, you know, oh, Stephen is pretending to be Diomedes and Troilus is jealous of Stephen and you know, that was a nice touch but uh, no I did like him like um, he, like, the part has done very well in terms of like you know he's a proud son of Troy but he doesn't want to choose between his home and his heart type thing you know yeah I just I, I've said what I feel about him and Vicky but he, yeah. he's a nice kid by himself yeah he's a lovely boy So, another very interesting character discussion. Uh, lots of thoughts, lots of feelings, emotions in our head. <laughs> so now we're going to go to the overall section and we're going to give our final thoughts and our scores on this story. So Trish, how would you lead us off into this one? Cool. So I have... 
I have very mixed feelings about this story. Mm. Let's start with what I did like. Okay. I did like how this is a really good history slash mythology lesson for children watching. Mm. So even like the simple things, like when Achilles is talking to the doctor at the beginning, he's like, oh, well, had you come down in your true form, I would have been blinded, which is something that we see in, well, in the Stephen Fry book, but it's something that we see in mythology. Similarly, when they talk about how Zeus was known to have children Mm. with earth people. Yes. Mortals. In various different forms. Yeah. And and they go through some of the forms that he's appeared in to other people. Um, I thought that was really good. I think while the characterization of the historical characters is, to your point, probably not what would be classical, you know, in classical history, that's not the way you'd actually imagine those characters. Mm. I think you kind of get the the bones of what's happening quite well. So I think from that perspective, I think it was very, very good. I think the humor was mm, touch and go. I think there's certain characters that it worked really well with, Paris in particular. Mm-hmm. There are other instances where I don't think it worked. Like Me- you know, Menelaus and some of the other just... Yeah. yeah. Like Menelaus being so disinterested. And like it's kind of meant to be funny but it just comes across as sad. Like he's just this old man who his presumably pretty young thing of a wife clearly doesn't want to fucking be with him. Yeah. And keeps running off with other people. Or like when... The doctor was like, oh, Agamemnon, your wife is unfaithful to you. And everyone's just laughing their ass off being like, well, everyone knew that. Yeah. Oh, except Agamemnon. (laughs) Agamemnon didn't know that. Um, So sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I think, I said, a lot of the historical characters I liked. (sighs) There was bits I didn't like. Yep. And there's one bit in particular that I can't fucking get over. I'm sorry, that exit. It, I... I already explained it, but A, you're rehashing an exit you've already done for what to many people is a similar character. So the youngest member of the group Mm. gets married off. But she's 16 years old. She's from the far fucking future. She barely knows this boy. Their longest conversation before she decided, I want to stay here with him forever. She was in prison, by the way. (laughs) Just FYI, like. And she has said numerous times how she wants adventure. She wants to see all these different places. Like when the doctor was like, oh, don't you want to go with Ian and Barbara? She's like, what do I want to stay in their time for? Like there's nothing interesting there. What the fuck is there to interest her in ancient Greece other than a cute 17 year old boy who she'll probably fucking get sick of because he doesn't know the real her and he keeps calling her someone else's name. Mm-hmm. Right, to be fair. Like I, I think that's, like, like when you got the hats for someone, you got the hats for someone. <laughs> I think what really bothers me with the whole, like, Vicky slash Cressida with Troilus thing. And how it differs from Susan and David. Other than that, the Susan and David were adorable as fuck, right? Is Troilus doesn't know Vicky. Troilus sees her as this, like prophecy wielding deity person i don't know if he even fully believes she's from the future so she's going to spend the rest of her life in ancient greece pretending to be someone she's not yeah and that does not sit well with me at all like at least if you know towards the end you know 
you had Troilus maybe being like, oh, so you really are from the future. Why couldn't you tell us what would happen? He's like, I can't change history. And he's like, okay. Or he's like, you know, okay, Vicky, let's see what we're going to do. And he and he recognizes her for who she is. Even if she adopts the name Cressida because Vicky is weird, you know, at least he would acknowledge her for who she is. But he doesn't do that, which I find troubling. And again, like the fact that the doctor, again, this is to your point, like we don't see the live action. So we don't know what his reaction was, but the fact that we don't see the doctor's reaction to her saying she wanted to stay with Troilus, I I am very mad at the doctor for his decision to let her leave. Now, in one sense, he has no fucking control over her. He's not her dad. He's not her granddad. Hmm. But on the other hand, you can't go fucking leaving people from the 24th century in ancient Greece, knowing you will never go back to them. Yeah. That just doesn't fucking work. Do you know? So overall, with all of that, and also, um, Loose Cannon, guys, I love you, but Jesus Christ, that music. <laughs> I don't know what it was with the music on this episode, but fuck me. <laughs> that was troubling to listen to. <laughs> so with all of that and the music, I originally gave it a three last night. All right. That was a bit bitter and twisted. I'll be honest. Yeah. So... I've now upped it to a 3.5. So the first time I watched this story, uh, this is going back about 10 years or so, I wasn't really into it. Uh, just, it didn't hook me for whatever reason. I think I was just, you know, bitter after, you know, they're not Barbarity and, and um, so I just wa- it didn't really, you know, draw me in. So now I watched it again and my opinion of it has changed an awful lot. I really wish it could be reclaimed because... I th- there are a couple of sequences in this that I would really like to see uh, brought back to, you know, v- some sort of visual medium or motion medium. I wanted to see the fight choreography because it sounded great. I would love to actually mm-hmm. see it done. Um, I want to see the sack the sack of uh, Troy because again mm-hmm. it sounded really intense and it sounded really good. And the last part of it then is I would like to see Vicky's leaving because Vicky is a character that I really enjoy and just having an audio departure on, on like in such a really bizarre fashion. Yeah. It's no, it's something that needs to be reclaimed. I th- I think it was a very ballsy move as well to, to have uh, end on a cliff, uh, you know, have the episode end on a cliffhanger with Stephen's life in jeopardy. Yeah. Because like we we've seen stories in like we've seen episodes in stories, end on a cliffhanger with a with a character's life in jeopardy like Stephen and the Censorites not Stephen sorry Ian and the Censorites, or Ian and the Aztecs or Ian and a lot of stuff, but um, <laughs> fuck's sake Ian, um, but to end actually a story on a character's fate is quite impressive. That being said, um, the humor again I agree with you didn't hit all the right notes that maybe that I wanted to I am curious to see how the story would have played out with the classical depiction of depictions of the characters would it have been less comedic and more drama and intrigue heavy and yeah like you like again I'm kind of a bit annoyed at the ending and initially my my thoughts on this were 3.75 that but as you know going back over my notes again and just realizing that I really fucking miss 
yeah, I'm, not, I'm not blaming like the the production director, like, like you're like the, the the fact that the episode's lost. I'm not blaming Lewis Cannon like that. I really missed the fact that Vicky was wasn't given a proper send off, so I I bumped it down to also three point five. So it's an it's an interesting watch, but if you're yeah. if you're someone that gets vested, invested into the characters and if you if you are a Vicky fan, you're probably not going to walk away from this uh, being overly happy. No, and the one thing I I, I wondered about is. You know, Vicky's departure, from what we understand, like this was the end of her contract. It was up for renewal or whatever. Mm. I wonder how the story would have gone if Vicky hadn't been leaving. Like, would they still have tied her in to the Troilus storyline? How would that have worked? But yeah, I agree with you. If you're a fan of Vicky, it's kind of a must watch mm. because it's her final story. But she does nothing for the first nearly two episodes. Mm. And her departure shit. So. And I just had a thought there. And I think I think this is a correct statement. But as far as I'm aware. At this point in time. Vicky, Stephen, Katerina. Uh, and yeah. And Katerina's departures. Are the mm. only ones that are still missing. Because later characters. Their departures have been now recreated via the animated DVD releases. So, I, w- I would like to see, like, obviously there are certain stories I would like to see brought into animated form, like Marco Polo or um, some other ones in um, the Patrick Trouton era. But I would like to see a, kind of a focus on the companions, the partner stories. Yeah, I think that would be a good, like, if you were to pick stories to do, yeah, p- picking it based on that would be good. I, I don't know if I'll ever do it, because it pissed me off so much, but... I would be curious as well to see how the novelization of this story handled the departure. And if in the novelization we get the goodbye. Because like I said, like in the chase, in the novelization, we got they went back to the TARDIS and they got Ian's wallet and Barbara's handbag and their stuff. And there was a bit of a, when you go home, you'll need money. So let's go get your things and, and, and bring them back. Mm. So, you know, that was in the chase. And I wonder if the novelization of the Mythmakers included the conversation that happened in the TARDIS I have a feeling that it probably would I, I think it probably would and like because like, there's, there's stuff there that you know is in the target novelizations that doesn't get thrown into it because sometimes it's more of a descriptive nature like mm. Ian's Adonis bro- bronze body <laughs> yeah, um, but or like just like other conversations and talk points and uh, stuff like that so um, no again we don't know whether it was the producer uh, whose name now escapes me uh, John yeah John Wiles is it mm-hmm. yeah we don't know whether it was John Wiles' uh, decision to remove any sort of scene of her departure from the script uh, we don't know even know if the, it was in the script in the first place so uh, it would be interesting to read the, the, to see the targets the target novelizations version so overall an interesting an interesting story to say the least mm. I think I probably will be going to seek out some more of Vicky's Big Finish stuff I know that there's a lot of Big Finish stuff that she's done with William Russell so like of the Vicky, Barbara and Ian era mm-hmm. and she's done loads with Peter Purvis of Vicky and Stephen so it would be interesting to explore some more of those and hopefully you will all get that um, bug too and go off and uh, review Big Finish for yourselves as well yes so 
as we have done with our previous companions when they have left, we will be releasing a special Ramblings in the TARDIS episode this Wednesday, where we will talk through the highs and lows of Vicky as a character. So tune in for that. And then next Monday, we are back to our regularly scheduled programming when we try to uncover the Daleks' master plan. Ooh. That's my line. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!